this week on the Back Table Podcast. The world is dark right now. There are so many shadows now. It is rare that we as a tribe of defenders of the detruser can use our cystoscopic swords and our pressure flow shields to fight for something that is so true. It is the light, a little bit of light, but it's so rare nowadays. It for us to find something where everyone wins. Patient, doc, the practice, right? The healthcare industry, healthcare systems. It can be a win for all. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable URI Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. This is Jose Silva, your host this week, and happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Wayne Kwan. He's a practicing urologist out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Kwan is a fellow engineer, MIT graduate. We both did biology at MIT. Then he went to med school at Stanford University. Furthermore, urology residency at Cleveland Clinic. And then you did a fellowship of fertility and Andrology, also at Cleveland Clinic. He specializes in vasectomy, vas reversal, testosterone, ED, peronis. But today we're going to talk about BPH. And in the past couple of years, Dr. Kwan is the creator of Man vs. Prostate Crusade. He's the defender of the Detrusor. And today we're going to talk about this, more of this. Right, Kwan? Yeah, that's right. Let's talk prostate, let's talk bladder health talk defending the detruser. That's what we're here about. So Dr. Kwan, so Wayne, welcome to Back Table. I'm very excited. So definitely I want to dig into what started this. Uh, how did your man versus prostate crusade, the, the defender of the detruser started? Can, can you talk about the, what happened? Yeah, well, it takes me back a little bit, which is I started practice in 2006. And I think one clear memory that I had that kind of resonated with me that, wow, BPH is serious stuff. And that is, I was fresh out of fellowship. I was hot to trot. I was robotically trained. There was not, he felt like he could do everything. 70-year-old guy, a cowboy off of a ranch in southwest New Mexico near the Gila Mountains. His family had brought him in and you could tell he was one of those weathered cowboys, thick in leathered hands, grizzly, man of few words, never smiled. But he was miserable. On the IPSS, his score was in the 30s, never sleeping, just absolutely miserable and having suprapubic pressure and pain, urgency, frequency, not a happy man. And he had fallen victim to the polypharmacy epidemic, multiple urologists, multiple medications, higher doses, and no one had bothered to do any form of data collection on his prostate, on his bladder health. Doing a prostate ultrasound, his prostate was actually 200 grams. No one had ever looked at that and figured out, hey, he's got a problem. They just kept pushing the pills on him. And so when faced with the choices of either at that time, 2006, an open simple prostatectomy or living a miserable life, he chose the one preferred path that he could control. And so he took a gun and he shot himself and killed himself. Holy shit. That was memorable, right? I mean, that's for me, I was like, wow, you know, you come out of fellowship and you have these rosy tinted sunglasses that you wear thinking, hey, you know, we're highly trained and we're going to go conquer the world. And you get out into the real world and you see that it's really affecting people in real ways, adversely affecting them and even ending lives. And so that's, it was really enlightening for me. And what I see, I mean, a lot of people, just like you mentioned, 
they go to the PCP, the PSA is low. So they say, hey, you're good. Do you see that patient that just because the PSA is, is low, they think that all the symptoms that they have is normal? Absolutely. We as men, especially dealing with BPH, what I've learned, and we might get into this, right? When we deal with men's health, men's wellness, is that men, we wear this armor of masculinity. And something that I talked about last year on LinkedIn is that men suffer from I'm fine syndrome. I just had a guy today actually come in. He said, yeah, I totally get it because it's part of my talk track. And he's like, yeah, if you don't diagnose it, then I don't have it. And he's totally right. And what happens is that we need a better way, and that's how we'll talk later, the five stages of bladder health. We need a way to help pierce the armor of masculinity, have men lower their defenses and recognize that, yes, there's a problem. And then we need to come in with solutions when warranted. So Wayne, so your journeys in terms of BPA, Defender of the Trucer, has been more than 15 years. It's not, even though in the media, this crusade is something recent, but definitely you as a urologist has been a long, long time. Because you, you did a fellowship. So uh, in terms of vast fertility, so that patient drove you more to, hey, there's a real problem in terms of BPH. We need to be more, more active and, and treat these patients. Well, I think, so as you know, or folks may or may not know, I was on faculty part-time at the University of New Mexico doing male fertility. And I had a combined position with a large urology group practice in the community, which I was with for eight years. And then about 2010, I started the Southwest Fertility Center for Men, where I could really focus on male fertility, vasectomy reversals. And then in 2014, I opened up a solo practice called MD for Men. And it was really an experiment or adventure into understanding how do we create a place that is the go-to place for men's wellness? And I chose it specifically not the number one place, but the go-to place, a place where men will tell another man, hey, that's the place you need to go to. We're building community. And with that, it was the mission that how do we empower men with the guest experience to evolve fearlessly into the best versions of themselves? And part of that, so vasectomies, testosterone, heronies, erectile dysfunction, BPH, they're all, all really part of men answering a simple thing, which is, what am I scared of? And we have to help men face, embrace, and move through their fear so that they can become the best version 2.0, the best fathers, the best sons, the best colleagues, the best bosses. And that was kind of how we started out. And I wanted every pathway within the practice to be simple, safe, effective, efficient, and personalized. And when I came to BPH Care Pathway, I, over 10, the first 10 years, there was a cognitive dissonance. There was something that wasn't quite right. I mean, Jose, you and I trained for years to be solution-finding surgeons, and yet I found myself being a pill-pushing physician. And instead of helping men be the best version of themselves in the operating room for BPH, I was mostly taking care of them in the office. I'm guilty of doing the prescriptions and the refills. And where else was I taking care of them? in the emergency room. When they came in with stage four, late stage BPH retention, you know, coaching for other physicians and other groups, the number one thing when I ask is, hey, when was the last time you were called from the emergency room for a guy in, the uh, in retention? I mean, for you, Jose, what's the largest volume you've been called about? 5,000? <laughs> exactly. Three, four, five liters. 
And then if I ask the secondary question, what percent of those guys are on BPH medication? Probably all of them. 80%, 90%? At least on Flomax, yeah. Exactly. And so it treats us cognitive dissonance. What am I doing wrong? Because here we have all these guys showing up and I am following the guidelines. So there's a disconnect. There's a cognitive dissonance. There's something wrong with the system. And I was part of that problem. And so I recognized that I was just trying to be a great urologist. And I was, how was I doing it? I was towing the party line. I was following the AUA guidelines, but it was not happening. The healing and the curing wasn't happening in the operating room. Like I said, it was in the office with prescriptions and in the emergency room with Foley catheters, with guys with late stage BPH. And I had become something that I wasn't comfortable with, which was a pill pushing physician still instead of a solution finding surgeon. And what I realized is that, and this is over a whole decade, is I was straying too far from our Hippocratic oath, right? We understand, I think I became so fearful that I was going to harm someone by doing something that I should not have done, like a surgery prematurely, potentially, that I forgot that you can equally harm someone by not doing something that you should have done like intervening soon enough within the window of curability to save a bladder, to prevent that late stage BPH. So really kind of understanding that and recognizing that in my world, if I wanted to create a pathway that's simple, safe, personalized, effective, and efficient, effective, right, is doing the right thing. I recognize that just managing symptoms with the AUA guidelines, we could elevate that, we could do better. And for us, it was prioritizing the preservation of bladder health. That is a higher calling that we all can share and believe in. And then to be efficient, I needed to recognize that it's not just in the treatment and the post-treatment phase of the care pathway, but actually in the pre-treatment phase. What are we doing before we treat to optimize how we make that decision with our patients about the right timing to intervene for a mechanical problem that deserves a mechanical solution? So, Wayne, in terms of the workup of the patient prior and after your, your, your switching your, your mindset in terms of how you're going to approach or tackle this problem, do you make any changes or walk us through when a patient comes to the office uh, for, for URA symptoms? What, what, what do you do? What was the talk? Just walk us through with, for, with that patient. Yeah. So, when we talk about the care pathway, it's going to be individualized, right? To your practice, your staffing, your operational systems, the hospital you work out, the healthcare system you work within. But in effect, for myself right now, I have a two-visit pathway. And I think it really starts with using the IPSS for what I feel it truly should be. Right now, I feel like it's terribly mislabeled. It's called the International Prostate Symptom Score. It really should be international prostate and bladder symptom score. But obviously, that would be too much of a mouthful. And so actually, I've playfully been advocating we should change it to the international peeing symptom score, right? I mean, at least we can keep the IPSS part. But because playfully, in many ways, at least in my opinion, and now with a recent journal article came out this year in Canadian urology, in some ways, I don't think it accurately predicts the degree of BPO or benign prosthetic obstruction, or how severe their, their situation is. And playfully, 
it could be considered the imaginative prostate subjectivity score. We all have had guys where you're like, is that really your IPSS? Now that I've seen your prostate and your bladder condition or the speculations, how can your IPSS only be a seven? And so, but it does have a lot of value. When those guys come in, number one is I have them fill it out by hand. I want their memory of what it's been like to live with their symptoms right in front of them. And then they sign their name. They're accountable for it. And they can look at it and go, wow, that's me. And then I take it and I say, wow, that's you. Mr. Smith, I just want you to know, I'm so glad you came in today because this is a problem. We worry about you guys when that score is eight and above. And not just because about the prostate, as it says right here, but actually a little known secret, Mr. Smith, is that it's really about your bladder health. And that's why we have to talk today because, and that's what I segue into the next point, which is critical. We have to provide a sense of urgency and a gravity to the situation. I let them know, hey, there's only two main organs that you can't transplant, your brain and your bladder. Your bladder is that amazingly complex that you cannot transplant that. We need to take care of it. It is that precious. And that's why, Mr. Smith, we've got to figure out what's going on here. So with that IPSS, what I do is I roll right into the five stages of the bladder health. If you want it, we can go into that now, but I talk about the five stages of the bladder health. And what that really does is that what I've done a lot of coaching for other physicians, other groups, the number one question I get is, hey, doc, how do I get men to do those procedures? How do I get them to choose a mist or an ist or a most or a list? And the number one thing is we are not here to get them to do anything. We're here to guide them. We need to be their Gandalf to their Frodo. We need to be their Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda, right, to their Luke. And how do we do that? Like in every great story, we provide a map and we provide advice along the way. And that map, that virtual map is the five stages of bladder health, right? We're trying to highlight what is at stake, which is bladder health. If the choice is made not to take definitive action about your prostate care, to preserve your bladder function. And so that's what the five stages of bladder health, I roll into that. It's critical. We talk about the five stages of bladder health because then we end with like, okay, what do we need to do? Because together, we don't want you to be a victim of late stage PPH. We need data. And what does that data look like? And as you may or may not have seen my talk about how we might want to think about remodeling or re-engineering the guidelines, is that when we get to that point, there's three main pieces of data that we need, right? Prostate size, prostate shape, but most importantly, detrusor function. We're big advocates. All defenders of the detrusor are big advocates that all patients should get good bladder health counseling. Talking about what's at risk, which is bladder health, that we want to prevent late stage BPH. And then get a good bladder health baseline, assessing detrusor function so we can risk stratify what bladders are at risk and at that point, I'm hoping that with the guidance, the guardrails, the safeguards from the academic thought leaders that they can say, hey, so once we have risk stratified based on detrusor function, how do we now select the best deobstructing technology based on prostate size and prostate shape? So in terms of bladder health or, or the detrusor function, what are you doing? Urocoff, urodynamics, how are you evaluating for that? So once we've gone through the talk track on that very first visit, I'm getting prostate size with a transrectal ultrasound on that very first visit because already I have a good sense of where they're going 
in sense of intravesical prostatic protrusion, size, and I'm already beginning to shape some form of path that I can guide them down. Then they come back for a second visit, and obviously assuming UA is normal, PVR is acceptable, as well as a PSA. Then on the second visit, I'm doing a cystoscopy. I'm filling them up at the same time and then doing a Eurocuff. That's what works for me in my office. But I think globally, I think we need to get back to the fact that the, cystos- the cystoscope is the sword of the defenders of the detrusor because we can find that globally. And we need to get back to trusting the truth of trabeculations. We've forgotten it. It's right there in front of us when the bladders are struggling. But we've really lost our sight a little bit. And I think that now with the Man vs. Prostate Crusade, we're just reorienting, redirecting the ship. And I think that's exciting. So yes, on the second visit, I'll do cystoscopy, fill them up, do a Eurocuff. And with two visits, I now have all the data that I can then present to them. And we do that through the Man vs. Prostate Report Card. And that really just helps guide them. And they understand already that our shared goal is to avoid them getting to stage three, four, and five. I'm sure you see those patients that, hey, I'd be fine. But then you go in and the detrusor, I mean, they have severe trabeculations. Even though the PBR is low, but still, you have a big prostate, 60, 80 grams, kissing lobes. But they say, I, but I'd be fine. Why am I going to do a surgery? So then that Eurocough will give you the, the information or the, the transition to, hey, you need, we need to do something before that bladder com- goes to, to stage five. Uh, so Wayne, can you go over the, the five stages of her function or bladder damage? Or- yeah. So the five stages of bladder health, that's really fine. Yeah. For folks who want to learn more, feel free to go to manversprostate.com. It's a free download as well as the Italian brigade of defenders of the detrusor led by defender Luca Sindolo. He really picked up on this and really has put his academic wisdom on the five stages of the bladder health. And you can get that in the Journal of Nature of Prostate Cancer and Prostatic Diseases. And that's with that, uh, you know, go to manversprostate.com. Really insightful comments from him from a very nicely academic perspective. And the five stages of the bladder health, amazingly, has really taken off, at least on LinkedIn. And to the point, it's been inspirational for urologists around the world. So there's defender Sonny Schlein of Schlein catheters and Prostolon. He actually did a painting, if you get a chance to see it. I mean, it's amazing. I couldn't believe it. No, I, I saw your post of the catheter, but no, I haven't seen the painting. I'll have to put that back out again, but it's got the saintly bladder being attacked by these five demons representing the five stages of bladder health. And we have to recognize the bladder is being victimized by the villainous prostate as that prostate's getting bigger and growing tighter. And the five stages of bladder health, as I said, is really the talk track that allows us to guide patients to make the best decision as well as to pierce the armor of masculinity that allows them to lower their defenses and to reach for something greater for themselves, which is a life well-lived, catheter-free and chemical-free. And so it's a verbal map that we talked about. And the reason why, if we're going to talk about, take for example, cancer, we talk about late-stage prostate cancer. Nobody wants that. Same thing with BPH. And we talk about prostate cancer affecting one in eight men. Well, we should be at least as concerned about BPH, which is affecting eight to nine of 10 men and preventing late-stage BPH. But to say that, we need to have the stages. And so the five stages are predicated on the fact that it has to be have relatable terms, right? So we're talking about the prostate as the size of a golf ball and the shape of a mini donut. We express a sense of gravity that, yeah, the bladder is only one of two organs that cannot be transplanted, the brain and the bladder. We've reinforced that, hey, Mr. Smith, this is a problem when the score, IPSS score is eight 
and above. And then we need to make an analogy where people can relate to. As you and I know, really the perfect corollary for the heart is valvular heart disease or aortic stenosis. But if we got into valvular heart disease with our patients, we'd never get out of that room. Luckily, we have ischemic heart disease and people can understand that. And so as a result, I created the five stages of bladder health. So as that prostate's getting bigger, right, the donut hole's getting tighter. And Mr. Smith, we talked about the heart's a muscle that pumps blood. The bladder's a muscle that pumps urine through that prostate. So as that donut hole gets tighter, stage one, things are going to slow down. And then stage two, if we don't take care of that problem, the bladder now over five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years is going to be overworking, struggling, quivering, becoming overactive, causing those symptoms, Mr. Smith, of urgency, frequency, getting up in the middle of the night. And then stage three, I think is one of the most important. Mr. Smith, if you don't take care of this, your bladder will start to act out like a rebellious child and squeeze without your permission, cause you to leak down your leg. Why is that important? Well, because it's not even covered. Urinary incontinence is not covered in the IPSS. And I will say, at least from my experience, and Jose, you may or may not feel the same, but that's the most embarrassing and shameful. I've had guys who stopped leaving the house because they were leaking down and smelling funny and embarrassed to be in the shopping mall. And then stage four, Mr. Smith, just like the heart can have a heart attack, the bladder can all of a sudden stop working. You show up in the emergency room needing a catheter. And in stage five, just like your heart can go into heart failure, your bladder can go into bladder failure and you may need a catheter for the rest of your life. And the one difference is, Mr. Smith, is when if your heart went into heart failure, you can still get a heart transplant. With the bladder, that's it. Game over. You're living with that situation and that's not okay. And so that story, that verbal roadmap that we're guiding them down activates them to make the best decisions for themselves I'm not telling them what to do, but they're self-activating to take action about their situation because they don't want to be that guy that gets late stage BPH. They don't want to be that guy that was warned about it and chose to do nothing and then ended up with a dead bladder. And it's the fear of catheters, the fear of emergency room visits, retention, leaking on themselves, and that vision, that dream for themselves to live their best lives the best version of themselves, chemical-free and catheter-free, that is going to have them want you to get the data to find out what's going on. No, and exactly. And you mentioned the fear, but also, unfortunately, some patients think that is normal part of aging. That is just, hey, I'm getting old. It's normal. Maybe the, their parents had it, so the father had it, so they're used to it. But no, I mean, there's, there's treatment. There's treatment we cannot, I mean, there, there, like you mentioned, there's things that we can do so that you have a better life. So Wayne, in terms, you mentioned earlier during the segment, education. So do you go and talk to PCPs about this and start talking about more of our bladder health instead of just the prostate? Absolutely. You know, for us, you know, the vision for man versus prostate, it's a garage-grown, grassroots crusade for us to redefine the BPH care pathway, right? It's going to take all of us. It's going to take a village. But I will tell you, at least here in the Americas, primary care docs are overwhelmed. I just worked with a primary care doc on Saturday and he's like, I don't have time. I need help. You know, I've got 15 other problems I got to take care of in 15 minutes. How am I going to really dive into that? And that's why it's going to take a collaborative effort on all of our parts, primary care physicians, specialists, mid-levels, urologists, industry, academics, right? We're going to all have to work together. 
So yes, the primary care docs need to be enlightened. We need to help them, I think, with mobile apps or online education, having a campaign that goes a national shout out to Defender Austin Slade, who did some research and reached out to a company. It's going to cost us about $247,000 to try and launch a national campaign. Obviously, as a grassroots, we're, we're not there yet, but how do we get the message out directly to the patients so the patients are coming in pre-educated for the primary care doc, pre-educated about the issues, the late stage BPH, when they meet with the urologist, you know, one of our playful hashtags that we really want to get out to patients is hashtag, hey, what about my bladder? We want them pushing the dialogue. And we can do that through collaboration to build communities, whether it's within industry, within online amongst patients, whether it's within academics with the AUA, the EAU, and the NICE, building communities, consistently sharing that message. So like, for example, healthcare industry reps, representatives, there's a defender, Trey Dorman from Neotract asked, hey, what do we do? Well, a very simple thing is start collaborating with other industry companies within diagnostics, can work with devices to share this message. Also in our marketing, we need to be very consistent in showing the bladder being beat up with trabeculations. A great one is when Optolume came out on the front cover of Journal Urology. I was like, yes, if you look at the picture, the bladder has trabeculations. On the academic side, AUA, EAU, NICE, you need to put good pictures of normal bladders versus trabeculated bladders that all urologists can download and put on the websites. Let's get every time a patient comes to a website from a urology practice, they're seeing a beat up bladder. We're consistently sending the same message that, hey, bladder health is what is really a priority, the preservation of bladder health. And then the second thing is internally and externally, we need to challenge the orthodoxy medications. And this is a very important point. Folks ask me, hey, are you anti-medications? Well, no, we're pro-data and we're pro-education. And part of that education is medications, yes, have their role, but not as therapeutic measures. They need to be relegated and reassigned to the category of temporizing measures, similar to a Foley catheter. Guy comes in with stage four retention in the emergency. We temporize the situation with a fully catheter. A man comes in with symptoms, stage two or stage three, right? Overactive bladder, urgent cons. We temporize the situation with medications. Hey, but Mr. Smith, there's a bigger problem going on here. We need data to figure out what needs to happen. And so that's a really important challenge the orthodoxy. Like medications are not a therapeutic measure, but a temporizing measure. Another one is just the use of language. We talk about benign prostatic hyperplasia in our guidelines, but that's a histology. We need to really get back. Words matter, right? If we use the word obstruction, that word affect that thought affects our actions and affects our habits because obstruction means there must be a solution that means deobstruction. And chemicals don't deobstruct. Yeah, I remember in Europe when residency. There were only four real indications for, for treatment. It was your retention, like persistent hematuria, I think renal failure, and maybe, I don't remember if it was recurrent UTIs or, or bladder stones. So by that time, I mean, you're already stage, probably stage four, stage five, and that's when you do a treatment and you're not going to get him back to a baseline. You're going to try to alleviate some of the symptoms, but really maybe you're not going to do not, nothing outrageous in terms of quality of life. 
And that's a challenge right there. And that's perfect. Challenging the orthodoxy, what's an indication? And then just redefining like, hey, how do we find the right patient with the right prostate to intervene at the right time within the window of curability? Because some of folks have said, hey, Wayne, are you an advocate for just early surgery for every guy? No, we're an advocate for finding the right time in that shared decision-making process that fits both the surgeon and the patient when warranted. And I think that's really important. It's at the right timing. And Wayne, why do you think we don't talk more or when we did residency, and I don't know if currently there's talk about the truce, but why we don't we don't talk about the truce enough? I mean, it's like after residency now that you have the, the defender of the truce, you're doing the LinkedIn, all the, the agenda. Why do you think we don't talk about this more? It's a fantastic question. The conversation about earlier intervention within the window of curability to preserve bladder health has been around for 20 years. Defender Andrea Tubero from Italy published a great paper in 2001 talking, hey, early intervention is needed to protect the bladder. It's been around for 20 years, but that was a different time. We did not have many tools on our tool belts. We had monopolar TURP and we had open simple prostatectomy with incredible morbidity and mortality. And as a result, medications came along with a perceived favorable, more favorable benefit to risk profile. And then we had industry dollars pushing pharmaceuticals, right? Think of all Flomax, all Hytrin, Cardura, et cetera, et cetera. 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, OAB medications, and the device industry and pharmaceutical industry really started putting a lot of money into that. And I think it just distracted us a little bit also because we didn't have many good other options. But at that time as well, we weren't feeling the full impact of late stage BPH. We are now feeling the full extent of men living longer with all these problems. And because of that, I think that was a big part of it. And then on top of that, operationally, it's just not that easy to get guys to do a cysto or to do pressure flow studies. It takes work, but things are changing. We live in this golden age of BPH, right? Where pressure flow studies, whether it's Urocuff or Labory, things are getting easier, right? With AI and so forth, with the operational efficiency of cystoscopy. Well, now there's disposable cystoscopes. You don't have to worry about trying to get that prepped and ready and worry about sterilization. And so I think we're starting to break the habit. You know, in the past, it was just too easy to prescribe and refill. And that was compounded by the fact that men had the armor of masculinity and I'm fine syndrome. So it's just easy to refill it because they said they're fine. But what we need to get back to, once again, we are not anti-medications. We're pro-data. Put the cards on the table. We have never had a better time to get data to put in front of men and say, hey, this is who you are. This is your bladder function. This is your prostate situation. These are your options. And now we have just a plethora of surgical deobstructing technologies in all the surgical categories of least invasive surgical therapies, minimally invasive, invasive, and most invasive. This is a great time for us to really tackle this problem and stem the tide because there's a tsunami coming of late stage BPH. And wait, at the level of the AUA, even in the, the guidelines, they revise it all the time, but really they don't talk about the truth. I mean, the, the, it's very vague in terms of the options, but they, they do mention a lot of the bills. How, how can we change that language in terms of 
the AU guy, guidelines or the AUA being a force to help bring that information to the patients. And all you realize is about, hey, we need to change our, the, the paradigm and focus on the truther. Once again, it's going to take a village. It's going to take healthcare industry reps. We need you to be evangelists. I need you going out there and challenging doctors, challenging practices. Ask them that question. Hey, what happened in the emergency room when that guy came in four liters? Why did that happen? And obviously, you can introduce what your technology does to help facilitate that BPH care pathway to prevent late-stage BPH because that's a shared common goal. The manverse prostate is really working at the grassroots level, trying to do direct to patient. We're going to try and launch BPH 360 in the spring equinox to really directly get the good information to understand that there's three things, right, that we talk about, the three Ps, prioritizing the preservation of bladder health, putting an end to the polypharmacy epidemic, and preventing late-stage BPH. Then on top of that, we're coming out, the EAU Incontinence um, Commission just put out a manifesto that they submitted and they had key opinion leaders sign it. We're doing the same thing. Just saying, hey, this is what we think we get. And I get it too. Please, please understand. I recognize who I am and who I am not. I am just a small community doc in the desert. You're more than that, man. <laughs> well, yeah. But that's a truth. I do not have the academic experience and expertise of all the literature. We need everybody to chip in, but also really focusing on the patients. I do believe that hashtag, hey, what about my bladder? If patients are pounding, hey, what about my bladder? I know you're talking about my prostate, but what about my bladder? It's going to drive that change on multiple levels. So at least that's how we're hoping to get there. You know, so that man versus prostate manifesto, direct to patient education, right? Really having us talk about just like here today on your podcast and other podcasts, how do we get there? And uh, you know, also the publication that came out in the journal of Nature, Prostate Cancer, Prostatic Diseases, that was huge. Really, to just give it a little bit of meat and authority that, hey, there's something here that we need to talk about. So that's where we're hoping, just changing the conversation, challenging the orthodoxy, and being willing to have that conversation. And I think, oh, the other thing is I want to bring up burnout and moral injury within urology. It's because we got away from being who we are, right? We're solution-finding surgeons. BPH is 30% of most practices' workload, but only 6% of their revenue. And it's also not fulfilling. We're not fixing problems. And we need to get back to what brings us joy as surgeons. And I think all those things, we start thinking about that, talking about that, feeling it, and listening to what I would call cognitive dissonance and resonance, what feels right, and letting that be our guide. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned resources and getting help from the industry. In my office, in every room, I have the, the diagram from Neuralift about the different stages of bladder health, or at least the picture, which I show the patient, hey, this is what we're trying to prevent. Once it's at the end, that's it. And most patients, hey, but I, I was never told this. I was told the PCP says that everything was fine. And that's why I, I asked you at, at the beginning of this, because... Sometimes the PSA is one of this. They think that the everything is normal. So, well, they're talking about prostate cancer-wise. Definitely BPH or, 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 or prostate is something different, and it shouldn't be normal with your age. The resources are critical. The number one resource is our minds. We have to come in the recognizing this is a mechanical problem, that this is a mechanical solution. Medications are part of the equation, but they are temporizing measures. And that we are going to be their guide 
and we're going to get them the data. Number two, very simple, our eyeballs in our hands. When you look your patient in the eye, you hold up their IPSS with their handwritten IPSS score and their signature in the bottom. You say, hey, Mr. Smith, this is a problem. That is a huge resource. That is a huge igniter. Because when they hear it from someone they trust, oh my gosh, that's a problem. That's not fine, Mr. Smith. Right? Right there. And that, that takes care of that whole problem you talked about. Right? And then our hands, right? I use a lot of gesticulation showing the prostate as a mini donut getting tighter, the bladder squeezing like an octopus. And the reason why I bring it up is we have it all right here. Yes, those resources like the pictures of trabeculations happy um, help, but it's not, you don't have to always rely on those. If you do guys have, if you guys do have that trabeculation photograph showing the progression from a normal bladder to a severely trabeculated bladder with cellules, that is fantastic. Quick tip to get two of them, one in the patient consultation room, get another one, put it on a foam board, attach it to the wall right next to the cysto or hanging off the side of your cysto monitor so you can show exactly what their bladder looks like versus the one that you already taught them about in the pre-cysto counseling. The other resources out there, for example, man versus prostate, we're trying to create flow charts, report cards, list of surgical categories, decision-making aids for patients that should be coming out this spring, as well as flow charts for each types of practices, depending on what you have, whether you have cystotrust, Euroflow, cystotrust, Eurodynamics, cystotrust, Eurocuff. There's not one way to skin the cat. As long as you're presenting all the data about detrusor function, prostate size, prostate shape, and talking about the five stages of bladder health and however you want to do it, that could be very helpful. And then there are more formal avenues for resources. One that just came out is called bphtool.com. Based on a lot of data, especially the combat trial, it lets you look at if you put someone on medications, tamsulosin, dutasteride, combination therapy, what can you expect their IPSS score to improve by, as well as what is the potential risk for acute urinary retention episode over the next four years. Wow. Now we have a tool for compliant, for, for medical legal. They say it's not a clinical tool but take it for what it is. But now you have something to say, hey, look, Mr. Smith, that's your risk. We don't want that risk. Our goal is to keep you out of stage three, four, and five. This is something we need to think about. Other resources out there, just to give any shout out to the Canadians, they have the decision-making tool for choosing types of surgeries, de-obstructing technologies that might best fit a certain patient for his prostate. And so that's also another great tool and resource. And so how do they come up with that, choosing which technique is better? It's just based on the size of the prostate, based, based on, the, on the length? Well, what, 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 what are they using to... Predominantly size. But it's something definitely to check out and see if you can incorporate it. I don't think it has all of the technologies because as you and I both know, the technology are changing very rapidly. Man versus prostate is really working now to look at how do we now personalize the therapy? What do I mean by that? If we look at Eurolift, it really is focusing on the roof and laterally. And many people have had issues, as I coached folks up, on the floor, that high bladder neck, moderate bladder neck. And the way we solve that with urolytics is we raise the roof, create an anterior box, right? And then resume is a little bit different, right? It's working more laterally, not so much anteriorly, and a little bit on the floor. But then now we have ITIN, for example, in the category of list, which is kind of bringing in a combination of the roof, right, at the 12 o'clock time, five and seven o'clock, 
creating a relaxing incisions like a twip, right? Allowing the lateral walls to relax away to the sides and dropping the bladder net, right? So now can we read, can we define that further choosing surgical category, uh, surgical technologies based on the specific anatomy? And I think we're going to get there. And then you have invasive surgical therapies in the category of IST and MOST, which is really a circumferential therapy, right? So looking at the surgical categories way past just size as a criteria, but really looking at shape and then detrusor function. And when can you go in and tell us more or less your algorithm in terms of deciding more or less what, what was the best procedure for each patient? In man versus prostate, do what you do well and do a lot of it, saving as many bladders of the now and of the future. What I tell people, we're all different. If, if we were all the same, we just all do the same fellowship, right? But there are folks who are ablative, extirpative, there's people who are reconstructive, and different technologies will appeal to different urologists. That's why we came up with those four categories, least invasive surgical therapy, minimally invasive surgical therapy, invasive surgical therapy, and most invasive surgical therapy. Have an action plan or an offering for each of those categories so you can meet the men where they are. Because once again, we're just guiding them. So I hope that helps. And you know, obviously, do what you do well because there's so many good options. I just started doing the equablation and I really enjoy it. Started doing like, like three months ago and I probably stick to it. I was doing a lot of green light before that. Now I'm doing more ablation. I think based on the ultrasound guided, I, I see the, the, the big hole there. So, yeah. I mean, some of those images are really impressive. That's a very interesting topic, which is when we talk about technologies and you may have or may not seen that I created the four elements of efficiency for the BPO care pathway. One is treatment durability, a man's vitality that we need to honor and respect and optimize and preserve, right? And we're trying to deobstruct for the right prostate, the right patient within the window of curability. That's number three. And the last is economic sustainability. I don't know the data out there, but when we look at great technologies like aquablation, does that mean we place the technology in every hospital? Is that sustainable economically? I don't know. But I do know we have a severe backlog throughout the world. In Sweden, they've had a huge rise in retention, stage four, UK as well. We're about to be hit by that here. We're already being hit by that if we talk to urologists around the country. Everyone's hearing about guys going in retention. Catheter rates for self-catheter going up. And so when we look at all these technologies, how do we find that right blend, right, of economic sustainability, treatment durability, man's vitality, and a window of curability? So that's going to be an interesting part for aquablation specifically as we move forward. Are you doing any office-based procedures with BPH right now? I do ITIND. I really, for me, that's been a great option for my situation, which may not be for others. I think it, once again, just have as many tools in your tool belt in each of those surgical categories. Like I talked about before, I like how it's actually treating all four areas, anteriorly the roof, the floor, that bladder neck, bringing that down and allowing the lateral walls to relax to the side. But every surgeon, every practice is different. So make sure you have something for list, missed, ist, and most. Yeah, good to know. So last week, we just got approved to start doing the ITIN. So I'm going to add that to, to the to laboratory. Because every guy's different, right? So, and there are guys, when we talk about list as a category, that's non-permanent technologies done in the office with minimal risk. 
minimal mist or is going to be permanent technologies done in the office with low risk. The invasive surgical therapies or IST is going to be permanent technologies done in the hospital with medium risk. And then you have most, right, which is going to be permanent technologies done in the hospital with high risk. And so that's at least how I use it as a patient education tool. Obviously, there are unique variants from each surgeon that can minimize or minimize risk in each of those categories, but it just as a general guideline. So Wayne, so you mentioned that you, the resources on mine versus prostate, so any of us can go there, even can we direct patients there to the website? Absolutely. They can go to the website and they can log in and they, when you register, they'll get sent the five stages of bladder health, which is really plain spoken. I tried to kind of find that space in between two academic and, you know, two plain spoken. And then right now we're coming out, uh, last year we produced about 30 educational videos for patients that we're going to try and now put out in the spring for patients to be educated about and just a different approach or a different perspective for the BPH, BPO care pathway where we are prioritizing the preservation of bladder health. We are trying to put an end to the polypharmacy epidemic and we are trying to prevent late stage BPH. So that should be coming out. And then also we have an educational series for physicians as well and urologists. So that'll be fun. Oh, great. So Wayne, anything else you want to add? I mean, I think we covered everything that you're doing. Definitely it's been years in the pro in the process and I think it's great you're putting the word out, trying to, for us as physician or urologists, change the way we talk to patients, hey, change the way we approach this disease. I think that that's just it's incredible what you're doing. But yeah, I think everybody should start thinking about bladder health instead of just a prostate. Absolutely. And I think if we do that, I'll end with this. The world is dark right now. There are so many shadows now. It is rare that we as a tribe of defenders of the detrusor can use our cystoscopic swords and our pressure flow shields to fight for something that is so true. It is the light, a little bit of light, but it's so rare nowadays. It for us to find something where everyone wins, patient, doctor, the practice, right? The healthcare industry, healthcare systems, it can be a win for all. And I think it's a real, it's an experiment. As you know, I don't know, I mean, you may or not, during the pandemic, I wanted to learn how to face my own fear with playing music. So I started playing on the streets. And what it is, is really an adventure in sharing, giving and receiving energy. And every time I get surprised by the man versus prostate is as we put out this energy, we receive it and it will disperse in a positive ripple effect that can affect positive change with our personal, professional, community, and global relationships. And I ask everyone, I was just recently in Buenos Aires at Malba, the fine art museum there, and they had an exhibit on habiting and transforming. To inhabit is such a, wor a word that we don't use that much, but how do we inhabit our spaces? Really feel it, sit in it, breathe in it, touch it, smell it, and then transform it in a positive way and watch that positive ripple effect. And I think we can do that. And I think it's a great social experiment. What can happen globally? How did the Italian brigade start? How did the Scandinavian brigade start? In the Colombian brigade now, looking nephrologists there and general surgeons are catching on. And they're not even neurologists. And that's kind of fun, right? I mean, we need something like that, a little bit of light that we can hold in our hands and then share with others. So with just a small thought, how do we inhabit and transform our space in a positive way? No, no, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. It's, it's um, I mean, every time I, I, I go to LinkedIn, I, I see your messages. They're definitely very motivating. I like being part of this movement that you have created. And like you mentioned, I mean, it's it's just 
is great and expressing the change to the patient so so that, that knowledge having the patients change their mind and it's not about the prostate only it's just preserving bladder health more so it's about just guiding them and being their partner on their journey our goal is to let them be the hero in their own story their own adventure where they saved their own prostate i mean their own bladder from the villainous prostate we're just there to be their guide also Wayne, i'm i'm really glad you came to the show we'll keep in touch definitely thank you for being here we'll continue supporting your cause and trying to just promote the 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 message yeah the defender of the truth sir i mean the, It's just great what you, have, what you have created. Well, thank you. No, thank you for your support. I think you've done a great job of spreading the news with back table urology, really educating and getting that message out globally. I mean, I can only imagine your numbers, your click throughs and the touching of lives all across the world. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.